Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. What's up, everybody? It's finally here this week, this Saturday, UFC 251 Fight Island, baby. Without a doubt, people are going to be looking to get in on that action, and we have the best place for you to go. My bookie, for the kind of guy who likes to bet a little to win a lot, Try parlay, for instance, if you're into a couple of the big favorites this week. We got Usman versus Masvidal, one-on-one once again. My bookie has more lines and better odds for the player than any other sports book around. And if you join right now, my bookie will match your deposit halfway all the way up to $1,000. That means if you deposit two grand right now, you get an extra grand in free money to play with. All you have to do is use our promo code BLV, that's capital BLV, to activate the offer. Once again, that promo code is capital BLV to activate the offer. Bet, win, get paid, my bookie. Today's Monday, July 6th, 2020, episode 215 of the podcast presented by Believe Podcast Network, the number one sports podcast network based in the city of Los Angeles, California. We believe in our teams. Do you believe 25 years? It's been 25 years. I think it was July 4th, uh, 4th of July, 344th birthday for the United States of America. It was the 25th birthday for the Foo Fighters, alternative rock band, you could say, rock and roll, doesn't matter. Uh, Dave Grohl, Taylor Hawkins, Pat Smear, Nate Mandel, Chris Shiflett, just to name a few in the band. Obviously, its origins are well known, at least in the rock and roll world. Nirvana drummer Dave Grohl was before the death of Kurt Cobain. Uh, ends up recording a demo, becomes the first Foo Fighters album, and the rest is history. He started out by himself. Uh, Everybody gradually came along. I believe Nate Mandel was the first out of that uh, uh, five-some to come into the Foo Fighters. Taylor Hawkins came over from Alanis, I know, as a drummer. Uh, A drummer in a drummer's band, a unique concept there. Uh, uh, But there's a lot to get into for the Foo Fighters. 25 years, they've recorded nine studio albums. The 10th was supposed to come out uh, in the last few months, but due to COVID-19, they've held off. They're waiting for it, waiting for... Uh, a better time. They don't want to play their hand too early, Uh, but it'll be their 10th album. The last one they recorded was Concrete and Gold back in 2017, was another killer from the Foo Fighters, and Dave Grohl has just been able to captivate uh, a career that he probably wouldn't have had if uh, Kurt Cobain hadn't been found dead on April 8th, 1994. Did he commit suicide? Was he murdered? The world may never know. I mean, yes, it, it is a suicide on paper and legally today, it was ruled a suicide the day of uh, of the of the I almost said murder. I'm reading a murder book called Love and Death: uh, the, the Murder of Kurt Cobain by Max Wallace right now, New York Times best-selling author, New York Times best-selling book as well, uh, uncovering the, the truth about that uh, scenario. And I gotta say, they make a lot of good points. They make a lot of good points in that book, Love and Death: The Murder of Kurt Cobain. You could probably get it at Barnes and Noble online. I got it on Amazon for three dollars. So um, we'll get into that in a later date, but we'll talk more about Dave Grohl and the Foo Fighters, 25 years of the Foo Fighters, how one of rock and roll's biggest tragedies formed one of rock and roll's best bands today here on the podcast, episode 215 presented by Believe Podcast Network, once again, the number one sports podcast network based in the city of Los Angeles. We believe in our teams. Do you believe?
and talking Foo Fighters' 25th year anniversary on Saturday, two days ago. Uh, and I wanted to jump right into kind of the history, the origin of the band. Because again, 25 years, they're now eligible for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I think Nirvana got in, what is it, six years ago now? Six, tw 2014 was six years ago now, geez. Uh, but in 2014, Nirvana was inducted, Chris Novoselic and Dave Grohl. And Dave Grohl is going to become a two-time Rock and Roll Hall of Famer. Honestly, he could, he could be a three-time Rock and Roll Hall of Famer by himself just for what he's done for uh, the rock genre. And again, the band formed 1994, I guess you could say, with just Dave Grohl alone. Everybody knows the backstory, like I mentioned. Uh, Dave Grohl, the front man for the band, he joined Nirvana as its drummer in 1990. So he was there for that four-year run. Of course, Nirvana had that first album, uh, Bleach, in 1989. Uh, Love Buzz, uh, you know, you could check out the album. Uh, but he joined as their drummer in 1990, and then during tours, apparently, he took a guitar with him and wrote his own songs. And Grohl ended up uh, holding back these songs from the rest of the band, Chris Novoselic and Kurt Cobain, the, they were a, a trio. And he said in 1997 that he was in total awe of Kurt Cobain's songs and his songwriting, and that he was intimidated. And he thought it was, you know, best that he kept his songs to himself. And Dave Grohl occasionally booked studio time to record demos and covers, and uh, issued a cassette to some of his closest friends. It was called Pocket Watch. Obviously, it was his demo. It was self-produced. It didn't sound great compared to the actual first Foo Fighters album. Uh, but it still sounded like Foo Fighters. Check it out on YouTube if you want to, Pocket Watch. Uh, and then, of course, like I said, April 8th, 1994 is when Nirvana came to an end. Kurt Cobain found dead in Seattle. And then Nirvana disbanded. Uh, they were the, the arguably the hottest band in music at the time. Uh, they... Uh, outsold Michael Jackson and Prince in, in, in at the top of the billboards. And, of course, Dave Grohl at this point, I think he received offers to work with numerous different bands. I think there were press rumors that kind of indicated that he might uh, join Eddie Vedder's Pearl Jam. He almost accepted a permanent position as a drummer with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, with what would have been very interesting. I know he played a one-off uh, show with them on Saturday Night Live. But Dave Grohl instead... He entered um, a music studio, I think it was Robert Lang Studios, in uh, late 1994. This had to be probably six months after the death of Cobain. And he recorded 15 of the 40 songs that he had already written during his time with Nirvana, with the exception of a guitar part on the song Ecstatic, played by Greg Dooley uh, of the Afghan Wings. Uh, but Dave Grohl played every instrument and sang every vocal on that first track, on that first record. And he was supposed to just join another band and be a drummer for the rest of his life. And he thought that he would rather do what nobody expected him to do. He says he enjoyed writing music and enjoyed trying to sing. And there's really nothing anyone can really do to discourage him in that aspect. So Dave Grohl completed an album... An album's worth of material in about five days and, and handed it out. He handed out uh, cassette tapes and cassette copies of the sessions to his friends for potential feedback. And Dave Grohl hoped to keep his anonymity and release the records in a limited run under the title Foo Fighters, in quotations, Foo Fighters, taken from, you know, the Foo Fighter, a World War II term for unidentified uh, flying object. And around that time, he recorded the first... Foo Fighters tape, and he was reading a lot of books on UFOs. Not 
not only is it kind of a fascinating subject, but there's a treasure trove uh, of, of band names in those UFO books, you know? Like, s since he had recorded the first record by himself playing all the instruments, but he wanted people to think that it was a group and not just him. He figured that Foo Fighter might lead people to believe it was more than just one guy, like an actual band. And had he actually considered this to be a career, he probably would have called it something else because it's the stupidest fucking band name in the world. Those are his words, not mine. And the demo tape kind of circulated in the music industry, creating interest among uh, different record labels. Obviously, he's already created a little bit buzz, part of that grunge era, part of the king of grunge, that band Nirvana. And initially, um, I think Grohl formed a band, of course, to support the album. And initially, he talked to... Chris Novoselic, who is, of course, the basis for Nirvana about joining the group, but both decided against it. I guess for Chris and him, it probably would have felt really natural and great, but for everyone else, it would have been weird, and it would have, it would have left him in a really bad position. Then he really would have been, you know, under the microscope. Like, they would have had comparisons between the Foo Fighters and Nirvana. And having heard about the disbanding of, uh, uh, I think it was another Seattle-based rock band, Sunny Day Real Estate. Dave Grohl went after the group's bass player, who was Nate Mandel at the time, and drummer William Goldschmidt, or Goldsmith, excuse me. But Dave Grohl even asked Pat Smear, who served as the touring guitarist for Nirvana, after the re release of In Utero, which came out in 1993, the second album, uh, the album after uh, Nevermind, that came out in 1991, uh, so Pat Smear was asked to join the group as the second guitarist, which he did, and Grohl ultimately licensed the album, the first album, to Capitol Records, releasing it on uh, Rosewell Records, uh, his, his new record label. So Foo Fighters made its live public debut, I think, in 1995. So little, I want to say 10 months after Kurt Cobain's death, they made their first live appearance as the Foo Fighters. It was in February of 1995 uh, in California, and then um, I think they made their way up to Portland, Oregon, and then they followed that with a show in Seattle on March 4th. So the show on March 3rd had been part of a benefit gig to aid the finances of the investigation into the rape and murder of the Gitz singer Mia Zapata, and Dave Grohl refused to do interviews or tour uh, large venues to promote their album. So Foo Fighters kind of undertook its first major tour in the spring of 1995, opening for Mike Watt. And the band's first single, which is This Is A Call, was released in June of 1995, I believe. And its, its debut album for the Foo Fighters was released the following month, I'll Stick Around, For All The Cows, and then Big Me, which is probably the most notable song if you're a Foo Fighters guy listening uh, on that album, Big Me. And those songs were released as uh, uh, subsequent singles. And the band spent the, the following months on tour, including their first appearance at uh, the Reading Festival in England in August of 1995. And then, of course, probably their, this is probably the album that got them on the map. Uh, I mean, not that they weren't on the map, but this is the album that really kicked things off for them was The Color and the Shape, which came out in, I think, 1997. So after touring through... For most of the spring in 1996, Foo Fighters entered Bear Creek Studio in uh, uh, Upper Washington with Gil Norton, who produced the record, its second album for the Foo Fighters. And while Dave Grohl once again wrote all the songs, the rest of the band collaborated on all the arrangements. So with the sessions nearly complete, 
Dave Grohl actually took the the rough mixes with him to Los Angeles, intending to finish up his uh, vocal and guitar parts. Uh, and while he was there in L.A., Grohl realized that he just wasn't happy with how the mixes were turning out and actually changed uh, William Goldsmith, who was the drummer at the time, he changed all of his drum tracks with his own for all but two songs. Uh, and during those L.A. sessions, Dave Grohl had played drums on the song. So unhappy with Goldsmith's drumming, Dave Grohl removed his entire sequence from the recordings and re-recorded the drum tracks by himself. And uh, as Goldsmith, of course, was about to come to Los Angeles to find out why he wasn't being called upon to re-record his parts, he called Nate Mandel from Seattle, kind of inquiring if he should make the trip out. Uh, but Dave Grohl then called Goldsmith saying, dude, don't come down here, I'm recording some of the drum tracks. So shocked by this, obviously and naturally, Goldsmith met up with uh, Nate Mandel in Seattle and uh, repeat, he repeated Dave Grohl's claim to be recording some of the tracks and Nate Mandel has, uh, responded by saying, is that what he told you? And Goldsmith affirmed it and, and Mandel stated, no man, no, he did them all. So Dave Grohl basically um, re-recorded, not basically, he did re-record all of William Goldsmith's drum tracks on that second album, leading to Goldsmith to say, fuck you, man, I quit. So Dave Grohl explained that he'd wanted the, the drums to sound a certain way on the album, and he wanted Goldsmith to play for the tour, even though it would not be his drumming, but Grohl's on the album. So, of course, feeling betrayed by that, he left the band. And in need of a replacement for William Goldsmith... And here's where uh, Taylor Hawkins comes in. Dave Grohl contacted uh, Alanis's uh, touring drummer, Taylor Hawkins, to see if he could uh, recommend anybody. He didn't ask him, but if he could recommend anybody. And Dave Grohl was surprised when Taylor Hawkins volunteered his own services as uh, the drummer for the Foo Fighters. Because Hawkins made his debut with the group in time for the release of its second album, The Color and the Shape. Again, three of those songs, Monkey Wrench, Everlong, which is arguably their most popular song ever, um, My Hero as well, and that album came out in May of 97, so a little uh, three years after the death of Kurt Cobain, Foo Fighters really took off, and the album included the singles, again, Monkey Wrench, Everlong, My Hero, Walking After You, etc., you name it. Uh, Pat Smear announced to the rest of the group that he wanted to leave the band in 97, claiming uh, that he was burnt out a little bit, but he agreed to stay with the band until a replacement could be found with him. And then about four months later in September at the MTV uh, Video Music Awards, Pat Smear simultaneously announced to the public his departure from the band and uh, introduced his replacement, which was uh, Fran Stahl, who Dave Grohl played with in his original band that he drummed for, Scream. Scream, I think, was the first band he ever toured with before Nirvana. And Stahl toured with the band for about the next few months and appeared on, I think, two tracks that the band recorded for movie soundtracks and a re-recording of uh, Walking After You for The X-Files and even for Godzilla. And a B-side from uh, My Hero single, Dear Lover, those both appeared in Scream 2. And, and the tour for the Color and the Shape album included uh, a main stage performance at the 1998 uh, Glastonbury Festival and culminated with a performance at the end, I think it was the 1998 Reading Festival in both in England, both of those Glassbury and uh, Reading Festivals both in England. Uh, Nothing Left to Lose, I think, was the next album, the one where Dave Grohl has the Foo Fighters low tattooed on the back of his neck. That came out in 99. And I think in 1998... 
Uh, Foo Fighters, I think they traveled to Dave Grohl's home in his home state of Virginia to write music for their third album because Dave Grohl, of course, grew up in that D.C. punk rock era. Uh, but, but Dave Grohl and Stahl were both unable to cooperate as songwriters, apparently. So Dave Grohl uh, told the press in 1999, in those few weeks, it just seemed like the, that the three of them were moving in one direction and, and Franz wasn't. So Dave Grohl was distraught over the decision to fire Stahl, as, again, they've been friends since childhood. They were in Scream together. But shortly after that, Nate Mandel called Dave Grohl to say that he was quitting the band to reunite with Sunny Day Real Estate, only to reverse his decision 24 hours later. So the remaining trio of Grohl, Mandel, and Taylor Hawkins spent, I guess, the next several months recording the band's third album, There Is Nothing Left to Lose, in uh, Dave Grohl's Virginia home studio. He built a studio in his home. Not the first time he did it. Wouldn't be the last time. We'll get there in a little bit. But the album, I guess, spawned, again, several singles. Learn to Fly, which is arguably one of their hit songs as well. Uh, the first band single to reach the U.S. Billboard Hot 100, too. So arguably, probably is their best single. Uh, other singles included Stacked Actors, Generator, Next Year, Breakout, uh, but before the release of the full album, Capitol Records uh, and their president, Gary Gersh, was forced out of the label. So this, uh, I mean, I guess given Dave Grohl's history with Gersh, Foo Fighters' contract had included a quote-unquote key man clause that allowed them to leave the label upon Gersh's departure. So they got out of Capitol Records, and they subsequently left the record deal and signed with RCA, who later acquired the rights to the band's Capitol albums. So after recording uh, for, uh, again, There Is Nothing Left to Lose, after that was completed, the band auditioned a number of potential guitarists and eventually settled on Chris Shiflett, Chris Shiflett who apparently had a, had a tryout for Guns N' Roses, didn't go. He wanted to be with the Foo Fighters instead, and after a few weeks, after hanging out, drinking a few beers, they said, you're in. And Chris Shiflett performs with uh, Me First and the, and the Gimme Gims, and uh, previously performed with... Uh, another band called No Use for a Name, and uh, Chris initially joined the band as a as a touring guitarist, but then a, again achieved full time status uh, before the group's fourth album. So in January of two thousand, I think it was two thousand, January two thousand, uh, the new uh, generation, Nate Mandel led a benefit concert in Hollywood for AIDS uh, denialist group. I think it was Alive and Well AIDS Alternatives with. Um, Christine Maggior and uh, free copies of her self-published book that she put out, What If Everything You Thought You Knew About AIDS Was Wrong. And additionally, the band's uh, official website featured a section of devoted to Alive and Well. And Sandra Thurman, who was then the director of the official of uh, National AIDS Policy, stated that this was extraordinarily irresponsible behavior because there is no doubt about the link between HIV and AIDS in the respected scientific community. Um, so links and references, I guess, to Alive and Well have since been removed from Foo Fighters' website, and no further mentions or shows of support have been made between the two sides. So that's interesting. Around 2001, the Foo Fighters established a relationship with Queen, arguably one of the most popular rock bands of all time. Uh, and again, particularly Dave Grohl and Taylor Hawkins were huge fans of Queen growing up. And in March of that year, Dave Roll and Taylor Hawkins inducted Queen into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and joined them on stage for a rendition of Tie Your Mother Down with Hawkins playing drums alongside Roger Taylor. 
And uh, Brian May, the guitarist for Queen, added a guitar track to the Foo Fighters' second cover of Pink Floyd's Have a Cigar, which appeared on the soundtrack to the movie Mission Impossible 2. I I think it was the second one. Yeah, yeah, Mission Impossible 2. And in 2002... Uh, uh, Brian May contributed guitar work to Tired of You and an outtake called Knucklehead for the Foo Fighters. And the bands have performed together on several occasions since, including uh, the VH1 Rock Honors and Foo Fighters headlining concert in, uh, I think it was Hyde Park. And then One by One, that was their fourth studio album. It's the one with the Heart White album, came out in 2001. I think it was at the end of 2001. And the band uh, kind of reconvened after a long hiatus after 2000 and after spending four months in the studio i think they were in la completing the album the album i guess just didn't sound right and the band had no confidence in the album to sell many records and uh with the album not reaching their expectations and much infighting amongst the members dave grohl and this i guess is right around the time that he felt like foo fighters wasn't going to make it it was like that seven year period Uh, started in 95, this was 2001, six years, I guess. Dave Grohl spent some time helping uh, helping out Queens of the Stone Age complete their 2002 album, Songs for the Deaf, and he played drums on that record. So once the Queens of the Stone Age album was finished and touring had started for both the Foo Fighters and Queens of the Stone Age, uh, the Foo Fighters were on the verge of breaking up entirely as the animosity grew amongst uh, Dave Grohl, Nate Mandel, and Taylor Hawkins. So Dave Grohl reconvened with Hawkins, uh, Chris Shiflett, and Mandel to have them play at the Coachella Festival. And also, Queens of the Stone Age was playing one day, and Foo Fighters was playing the next day. So Dave Grohl was playing both days. And after Queens of the Stone Age played, Taylor Hawkins and Dave Grohl talked about uh, retrying the One by One album. And after the group enjoyed their performance the following day at Coachella, um, I guess there was the, the, so it was so good that they agreed to stay together. So the Foo Fighters lives on in 2001, and the group then re-recorded nearly all of the the one by one album. Um, I think it was in a 10 day stretch too at Dave Grohl's home in uh, Virginia, Alexandria, Virginia, and uh, the following I guess that was what the following month after Coachella, so around May. So the original version of one by one referred to by the band as Million Dollar Demos, has actually never been heard or released in its entirety, though seven tracks from the sessions were actually eventually leaked online in 2012 and 2015. But the final album was released in October 2002 under the title One by One, and singles from that album included All My Life, another hit song, Times Like These, another hit song, Low, Have It All. Uh, I mean, the tour for the album included, uh, I think, they headlined. It was a headline performance at the 2002 Reading and Leeds festivals in, um, in England again. So for, for most of its history, the Foo Fighters chose to stay away from the political realm. But in 2004, there's always a but, uh, upon learning that George W. Bush's presidential campaign was using times like these at rallies, Dave Grohl decided to lend his public support to John Kerry's campaign. So he said there's no way of stopping uh, the president of playing their songs. So they went out and played it for John Kerry's people instead, where he thought the message would, would kind of make more sense. So Dave Grohl attended several John Kerry rallies and occasionally performed solo acoustic sets. And the entire band eventually joined Dave Grohl for a performance in Arizona, kind of coinciding with the, the, one of the presidential debates. 
Yeah, because I know somewhere down the line they played a lot of shows for Obama as well. I uh, can't say that they've played any for Trump, but who knows. Uh, In Your Honor, this is arguably one of their best albums, 2005. Uh, having spent a year and a half touring behind one by one, Dave Grohl did not want to rush into recording another Foo Fighters record. So initially, Dave Grohl intended to write uh, acoustic material by himself, but eventually the project involved the entire band by the end of it. So to the record, uh, it's its fifth album, and the band shifted to Los Angeles and built a recording studio, which is now dubbed Studio 606 West. It's where uh, Sound City, uh, the Sound City documentary took place because he's got the oh-so-ever-important Neve console, which is apparently 75 grand, which is ridiculous. But Dave Grohl insisted that the album that uh, it be divided into two discs, one full of rock songs and the other featuring acoustic tracks. So in your honor, was released in, I think, halfway through June 2005, if I'm not correct. The album singles include Best of You, probably the best Foo Fighters song ever. I think they, they finish with that song when they go out for their encore every show. Best of You, uh, uh, DOA, Resolve, No Way Back, Slash Cold Day in the Sun. Uh, but during September and October of 2005, the band toured with Weezer on what was billed as the Foozer Tour. That's funny. That's smart. Good job, boys. Um, and the, the two bands co-headlined the tour. So Foo Fighters also played a headline performance at the 2005 Reading and Leeds festivals in, in England. And on June 17th of 2006, Foo Fighters performed its largest non-festival headlining concert to date at Hyde Park in London. So Motorhead's Lemmy Kilmeister joined the band on stage to sing Shake Your Blood from uh, Dave Grohl's Probot album. And also as a surprise performance, Brian May and Roger Taylor of Queen jammed with the Foo Fighters, playing part of We Will Rock You as well as Tie Your Mother Down. Uh, and Dave Grohl, as we'll talk about later on too, has basically accomplished everything. He's checked off everything off of his bucket list when it comes to playing with his heroes. But we'll get into that a little bit later. Um, and of course, in further support of In Your Honor, uh, the Foo Fighters decided to organize a short acoustic tour for the summer of 2006, and the tour included members who had also performed with them in late 2005, like Pat Smear, who rejoined the band, uh, Petra Hayden on violin and backing vocals, Drew Hester on percussion, um, I mean, you name it. And while much of the set list focused on In Your Honor's acoustic half, the band also used the opportunity to play lesser-known songs like Ain't It the Life, Floaty, uh, See You, I think, is one of the songs they played. And the band also performed uh, Marigold, which was a pocket watch era song by Dave Grohl that was best known as kind of a Nirvana B-side song. Uh, and then in November of, I think, yeah, November of 06, Skin and Bones came out. So the band released their first ever live CD, which was Skin and Bones, featuring 15 performances uh, over, I think it was a three-night period in Los Angeles. And then, of course, uh, the Greatest Hits album I know came out. Echo, Silence, Patience, and Grace also came out. Another great album. I think The Pretender was on that album. I mean, for the follow-up to In Your Honor, it was pretty badass. And uh, the Foo Fighters decided to call the, the Color of the Shape producer Gil Norton, the album that they put out in 97. And Echo, Silence, Patience, and Grace was released in September of 2007. So the album's uh, first single, The Pretender, um, was issued to radio in early August and in, in mid to late 2007 the pretender topped Billboard's modern rock chart for a record 19 weeks in a row and and then the second single Long Road to Ruin 
was released in December of that year, supported by a music video directed by uh, Jesse Parrott, who was a longtime collaborator, um, formerly of the Melonheads, or the Lemonheads, excuse me. And other singles included Let It Die, Cheer Up, uh, Your Makeup Is Running. And in October of that year, 07, 2007, the Foo Fighters started its world tour in support of Echo, Silence, Patience, and Grace. And Foo Fighters performed shows in the U.S., Canada, Europe, Australia, New Zealand, Asia. Um, they headlined the Virgin Mobile Festival in Baltimore on August 9th of 2007. And at the European MTV Music Awards in 2007, Pat Smear confirmed that he's returning to the band full-time, and he's been there ever since for the past 13 years. But Echo, Silence, Patience, and Grace was nominated for five Grammy Awards in 2008. That's how good it was. The Foo Fighters went uh, back home with uh, Best Rock Album, Best Hard Rock Performance, and that was, of course, for The Pretender. And the album was also nominated for Album of the Year, while The Pretender was also nominated for Record of the Year and Best Rock Song of the Year. So I think it was halfway through 2008, so June, July 2008. This is when it got great. I mean, the band played Wembley Stadium. You can check this out on iTunes, on YouTube, wherever you want to do it. They played Wembley Stadium in London. They were joined by Jimmy Page and John Paul Jones of Led Zeppelin, another band Dave Grohl grew up idolizing. Uh, they played rock and roll. Dave Grohl was on drums for that. Taylor Hawkins on vocals. Great live set. You got to go check that out on YouTube. And then Ramble On, uh, that one was sung by Grohl and then drums by Taylor Hawkins. And as Jimmy Page and John Paul Jones left the stage before a final encore of Best of You, an ecstatic, uh, uh, just a pumped up Dave Grohl shouted, welcome to the greatest fucking day of my whole entire life. Uh, and again, he, he idolized uh, Jimmy Page. He, he says in multiple interviews that, that that's his, his uh, guitar hero right there, Jimmy Page of Led Zeppelin. He says, welcome to the greatest fucking day of my whole entire life. And throughout the tour for Echo, Silence, Patience, and Grace, Foo Fighters had been writing and practicing new songs and sound checks. So after Foo Fighters completed the, I think it was, yeah, this tour in late 2008, they recorded 13 new songs in their studio, 606, shortly after announcing a hiatus from touring, which would last until January 2011, so about three years, or two and a half years, excuse me. And then these, se these sessions that they had likely lasted from late 2008 to early 2009, while the members of Foo Fighters had initially planned for their new album to come out in 2009 with almost no touring support. So they ultimately decided to shelve most of those songs from those sessions. So three of these songs were later released. Wheels, um, another great hit. Uh, Word Forward, which were directly placed on their greatest, uh, their greatest albums, um, or their greatest hits album in 2010. And then a newly recorded version of Rope, which actually ended up making the final cut of Wasted Light that came out in 2011. So on November 3rd, 2009, the band released the, the, comp, uh, the compilation album Greatest Hits, which featured uh, Word Forward and Wheels, which is awesome. And, and these songs were recorded during a session which occurred between Echo, Silence, Patience, and Grace and Wasting uh, Light. Uh, so Foo Fighters performed a show at Studio 606 in October 2009, which was broadcasted online, during which the band took fan requests, which is actually really cool. And talking about Wasted Light, I, th I think this came out in 2011. They worked on this for several years. In uh, late 2010, the band began uh, uh, recording their seventh album with uh, Butch Vig, who's very famous for recording Nevermind with Nirvana. 
Um, he's previously pro uh, produced two new tracks for the band's Greatest Hits album. And the album was recorded in Dave Grohl's garage using only analog equipment. So it was tapes, so they couldn't go back and change it. They had to be perfect if they wanted it to sound good. You couldn't just uh, grab your computer and edit things out. So Dave Grohl uh, and the Foo Fighters, this album won five Grammys and was nominated for six. So if you thought that 2008 album was good, this one was even better. The recording was analog to tape and used no computers. Like I said, not even to mix, master, or even edit these performances. And Butch Vick said in an interview with MTV that the album was entirely uh, analog until post-mastering. And Pat Smear was present in, in many photos posted by Dave Grohl on Twitter. And, and in a press release in December confirmed that Pat Smear played on every track on the album and was considered a core member of the band once again, having initially left as a full-time member in 1997 before he returned in 2006. Again, Pat Smear was a touring guitarist with Nirvana as well. But the first single from Wasting Light was Rope, which was released uh, to the radio in 2011, early, I think, February, March 2011. And then on April, in April of 2011, the Foo Fighters released uh, album covers, I think Medium Rare, um, a limited edition vinyl cover for Record Store Day. And, and the promotion for the album has been highly praised for its originality. I mean, Wasted Light debuted at number one on the Billboard 200 chart, being the first Foo Fighters album to do so. And other singles for the album included Walk, which is arguably my favorite Foo Fighters song of all time. Walk may be one of my favorite songs ever. If you listen to Walk, it, it, it's just tugs on your emotions, man. It, that's the, probably the best thing about Foo Fighters songs. They have a ton of rock and hits, but they also have a ton of great songs that'll tug on your, on, on your part strings. So uh, it included Walk, um, these Days, uh, Bridge Burning, and alongside Wasted Light's release, the Foo Fighters released a, a documentary, you could call it a rockumentary, if you will, directed by uh, James Mull, who's an Academy Award-winning uh, documentary uh, film director. And the film, entitled Back and Forth, kind of chronicles and goes back to the band's career, from the dissolution of Nirvana due to Kurt Cobain's death, to the formation of Foo Fighters as Dave Grohl's one-man band, to the status of the band in 2011. And all the current and past members, plus Butch Vig, the producer, they tell the story of the band through interviews. And after debuting this documentary in March of 2011 at the, at the I think it was South uh, by Southwest Festival in Austin, Texas, it was eventually released on DVD in June of 2011. And in May of 2011, a lot of dates here, people, Foo Fighters headlined the, the middle day of the Hangout Music Festival in, in Alabama, I think it was Gulf Shores, um, and, I, and also in that month, they played a surprise set at the, uh, the Weenie Roast in 2011. They also headlined two sold-out shows on July 2nd and 3rd at the Milton Keynes National Bowl. Uh, they were joined on stage by Alice Cooper, C6 Steve, John Paul Jones of Led Zeppelin. They headlined the final night at the 20th anniversary of Lollapalooza in Chicago's Grant Park in August of 2011. I mean, a, a lot of success came from wa uh, Wasting Light. Um, I, I mean, the, I think the tour ended in the summer of 2012. The Foo Fighters ended its European tour in August of 2012 uh, with a headline performance at, of course, you guessed it, Reading and Leeds Festival in England. And on September, I think it was, I don't know the date, September, though, of 2012, the band headlined the, the Music Midtown Festival in Atlanta, Georgia, as well. And the following evening, the band headlined the, the Luna Festival in Pensacola Beach, Florida. Uh, just a ton of success coming from this 
the band performed shows at the Fillmore in Charlotte uh, as a benefit for Rock the Vote. And the show, which occurred at the same time um, that the 2012 Democratic National Convention was being held in Charlotte, it was announced that only two weeks prior, uh, all tickets to the 2,000 fans in capacity that the venue was sold out in under 60 seconds, which set a, a record for the venue. So, again, uh, Wasted Light, great album, probably one of their most successful from uh, a, a, an underlying perspective. It didn't have quite all their hit songs on it, but it had a lot of success. And that leads into Sonic Highways, which came out in 2014. But before we get to Sonic Highways and that entire HBO documentary series for Sonic Highways, let's hear from our handy-dandy sponsor over at TickPick. Talking Foo Fighters 25th anniversary on this Monday afternoon, and we've gotten through almost all the albums except Sonic Highways and then Concrete for Gold. Sonic Highways, to me, is brilliant. Just a great idea, great soundtrack as well. It's the eighth studio album by Foo Fighters. It was produced by Butch Vig. It was released in November of 2014 on RCA Records. And in writing the album's eight songs... Dave Grohl and Taylor Hawkins and everybody else, they traveled to eight different cities across the U.S. to conduct interviews with musicians, recording engineers, recording producers, uh, other individuals discussing each city's musical history, and they used it as inspiration for the song lyrics. Dave Grohl interviewed these people, and the song lyrics are what you hear in the documentary of people being interviewed throughout the documentary, which I think is just brilliant. I mean, how is this not been come up with before. Uh, the band, the Foo Fighters and Butch Vig then traveled to a different, a different recording studio, different location in each city to record the songs. And this was on HBO, by the way, probably still is. Uh, each track features contributions from more, one or more musicians with ties to that city's musical history. And the process was filmed for a companion television series, Foo Fighters Sonic Highways, again, which was broadcasted on HBO in the months surrounding the album's release back in 2014. I mean, uh, uh, just to list some of the track listings, Something From Nothing, that one was in Electrical Audio Studio in Chicago, Illinois. That one featured uh, lead guitarist and lyricist from uh, Cheap Trick, Rick Nielsen. There was The Feast and the Famine, which featured Peter Stahl and Skeeter Thompson from Scream. Uh, that one was in Arlington County, Virginia, where Dave Grohl grew up in Inner Ear Studios. Um, Congregation, which featured Zach Brown from Zach Brown Band, was in Southern Ground Studios in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, what Did I Do? God is My Witness, featuring Gary Clark Jr. That one was in Austin, Texas at Studio 6A. Uh, then they went to uh, Rancho de la Luna in uh, Los Angeles, California, and recorded with Joe Walsh and Chris Goss uh, from the Eagles. That one was Outside, entitled Outside. In the Clear, which featured 
Preservation Hall Jazz Band. That one was in Preservation Hall in New Orleans, Louisiana. Uh, Subterranean, that one was probably the best episode in Seattle going through the whole grunge era. Chris Cornell was a big part of that one. They talk about Kurt Cobain, of course, and Robert Lang Studios in Seattle where they recorded the first Foo Fighters album, where Dave Grohl recorded the first Foo Fighters album. Uh, this one, Subterranean, featured Ben Gibbard, lead uh, uh, vocals, frontman for Death Cab for Cutie. And then probably my favorite song on, uh, on the record, I Am a River. That one featured Tony Visconti and Kristen Young. That one took place in the Magic Shop in New York City, uh, near Times Square. So it was New York City, uh, Seattle, New Orleans, Los Angeles, Austin, Texas, Nashville, Tennessee, Virginia in uh, Washington, D.C. area, and then Chicago, Illinois were the eight cities that they traveled. Just, again, a genius idea for Sonic Highways. And then that leads us to uh, Concrete and Gold, which came out in 2017. That one was their last album that came out. Obviously, they have announced a much newer album that is coming out eventually. Uh, but again, to this point, uh, no news, no further news on when the new album here in 2020 is going to be released. I think it was in June of 2017, so just a summer hit, uh, June, two, I think it was June 1st, 2017, Run, which was released on the Concrete and Gold album, Run was released, that was the single, uh, it topped the U.S. Billboard mainstream rock songs yet again, that chart, uh, the following month in July, so with the new album released, the Foo Fighters also confirmed that they, uh, they're touring, I think it was uh, Rami Jaffe, uh, he officially joined the group as the sixth member of Foo Fighters, uh, touring keyboardists. And the Foo Fighters announced in June of 2017 that their new album, Concrete and Gold, uh, it was fully released in September. So the, the band released Concrete and Gold, uh, like I said, Run. The Sky is a Neighborhood, another kick-ass song, which also topped the mainstream rock chart. The Line was also re uh, released in promotion of the album, and then later as the third single in 2018. Uh, but Concrete and Gold was officially released on September 15th of 2017, was produced by Greg Kirsten, and the album is kind of famous for, that's like a deriving influence from many uh, rock bands like Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin and The Beatles. Uh, but Concrete and Gold also features Justin Timberlake, of all people, on the vocals for Make It Right, uh, Sean Stockman of Boys to Men on backing vocals for Concrete and Gold, Paul McCartney's on it on, on the drums for Sunday Rain, and Taylor Hawkins actually sings that song. And, and, the, and, the, be, and the, the band began touring uh, with this album in June of 2017, including headlining, once again, the Glassbury Festival, uh, the Glastonbury Festival in London, England in 2017. And of course, like I said, uh, it was announced in October of 2019 that the Foo Fighters announced that they were recording their 10th studio album based on demos from Dave Grohl. So in, I think it was November of 2019, the Foo Fighters released an EP titled, uh, and it's a, a lockbox combination, it's 01050525 in a digital format consisting of 11 tracks including demos, live performances, a cover of Creedence Clearwater Revival's Born on the Bayou, and a studio version of Skin and Bones, a song previously recorded from other live performances. And in fe February of this year, so a few months back, Dave Grohl announced that the new album was complete and it's going to be out in time for the band's 25th anniversary, which was, again, two days ago. I don't think it's out yet, obviously, due to the uh, circumstances. And then on May 11th, of course, the Foo Fighters announced that they were delaying the record's release indefinitely because of the ongoing coronavirus pandemic, with Grohl saying that they've kind of shelved it for now to figure out exactly what's going to happen but nonetheless those are the Foo Fighters uh, 10 albums or at least the 10th album is coming out those are the nine confirmed albums 
all kick-ass albums, all kick-ass songs. Again, Foo Fighters songs are the best because, I mean, there's a few of them that you could really jam and vibe to, and then there's ones that just tug on your emotions. They tug on your heartstrings, man. And they're just great songs from a guy who didn't really expect much from himself after the death of Kurt Cobain and the disbandance of uh, arguably the greatest rock band of the 90s in Nirvana with Chris Novoselic, Dave Grohl, and Kurt Cobain. So again, Foo Fighters, 25 years. Looking forward to that 10th album. This was episode 215 of the podcast presented by Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network in the city of Los Angeles, the number one sports podcast that is in the city of Los Angeles. We believe in our teams. Do you believe? And of course, we're presented by Mecca Nutrition. If you're into banging weights, eating steaks, and sleeping eights, head on over to MeccaNutritionStore.com right now using the promo code OSHO20. That's capital O-S-H-O-W-20 for $20 off your next order. Swole's the goal. Size is the prize. Hit it, duty. listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform check us out at believe.com and search for b-l-e-a-v on youtube